The second package waiting for Tad was much simpler in how it looked. It was just a cardboard box that had his barracks address on it and the same barracks address as the return address. He carried both boxes back to his bed at Fort Worth and sat down to open them. He chose to open the seemingly less exciting cardboard box first. As he did so, it exploded. This is Red Rum, stories about the true victims of crime. Kathleen Smith was born into a family of five. She was the youngest of her siblings and her family were known around the town. Her dad, David, owned a waste management company and her mum, Carol, was working in the city's political scene in Tempe, Arizona. Kathleen grew up in the same area and so some of her friends in her early adult years were the same friends she'd made whilst she was a child. Two of those were brother and sister duo, Robert and Mary Ortloff. They were the children of Kathleen's mum's friend and so the two families would often hang out together, having dinners and socialising. Mary and Kathleen became best friends and Robert and Kathleen got on well too. They even dated for a short while but they soon realised they were better off as friends. As Robert grew into a teenager and then a young adult, he started working nearby at his mum's florist. But he had his sights set high and he and Kathleen often spoke about building some kind of business together. Kathleen's main hobby was dressage riding. She was actually competing well and was top ranked in dressage riding in the US. She had her sights set on a successful future and at the age of 20, decided to ask her friend Robert if he wanted to buy a Subway franchise with her. It was an easy decision for him. He said yes, and the pair became business partners. During this time, Kathleen also worked for a few hours a day at an estate agent and was also dating a man called Sam Cayley, and the couple were pretty serious about each other. On the evening of the 4th of October 1984, Kathleen and Sam went inside her apartment and fell asleep. The next morning, Kathleen drove Sam to where he was staying and then headed over to Mesa Community College to take a psychology test. Not much is known about the journey Kathleen took back to her apartment, but the events after are well documented. At 10.40am that morning, grandmother Ina and her granddaughter Lisa were outside their apartment. Lisa felt a man rush past her and almost knocked her grandmother over. Lisa was so angry with the man that she was getting herself ready to shout after him, but she decided to tend to her grandmother instead. As she got her grandmother back up to a steady position, the pair noticed black smoke coming from just behind them, just across from another set of apartments. The apartment that was on fire was where Kathleen Smith lived. Lisa ran inside and called the fire department. Firefighters soon arrived and they made their way into Kathleen's apartment. Immediately on entering, they smelt gasoline, so they knew this had been intentional. They managed to get the fire under control, but as they were searching the house, they came across the charred remains of a human body. Dental records identified that the body was 20-year-old Kathleen Smith. Kathleen's first autopsy revealed that she died of thermal burns, which ultimately meant that she was alive when the killer had set her house alight. However, the second autopsy conducted for the subsequent trial would show different findings. After that, Lisa gave officers a description of the man she'd seen running away from the scene, although she did say she hadn't got a good look at him because it had all happened so quickly. She described the man as being dressed in shorts and a hoodie, and that he had a rucksack on his back. Lisa was asked to do a photo lineup where she'd pick the man who she'd witnessed running away from the crime scene. Of the six men, 
She chose Kathleen's friend and business partner, Robert Ortloff. It was a bit odd to police that Lisa had picked Robert because he had dark black hair and the initial account from Lisa had stated that the man she saw running away had sandy blonde hair. Although Lisa had said that it all happened so quickly, she couldn't really remember what he looked like and even on picking Robert out of that lineup, she wasn't sure she was definitely right. Lisa's grandmother Ina was also asked to pick from the photo lineup, but she stated that no one on the lineup looked like the man who had run away from the scene. Detectives began to look into Kathleen to try and understand who would have wanted her dead. They found that Robert and Kathleen had decided to go into the Subway sandwich shop business together in 1984. Back then, Subway was a relatively new thing and so the shop they decided to open together would only be the third in the whole of Arizona, certainly an opportunity to make some serious money. With their new business venture well on its way, Robert and Kathleen had decided to protect themselves by taking out life insurance policies through the business. Although Robert also took out a life insurance policy that Kathleen signed that stated him as the sole beneficiary. Kathleen didn't ever take out the same life insurance policy on Robert. Her mother would later say it's because she didn't see the point. The policy would protect the future assets, at least for Robert, by adding up to a total payout of over $125,000. What Kathleen didn't know at the time was that Robert was already in quite a bad financial hole. In order to start the business with Kathleen, he'd needed to put up $7,500. He'd borrowed this amount from his grandfather with the plan to pay it back gradually. And then in the same year, he'd actually stolen a further $7,500 from his grandfather. His family had found out about this and he'd promised to pay it back. But how he was going to do that, he didn't know. He soon came up with a plan. He took $7,000 out of his and Kathleen's business account. Kathleen didn't know he'd done this at the time and the money was a loan specifically meant for the Subway franchise. All outgoings had to be agreed between him and Kathleen, and he knew she probably wouldn't agree to that, so he'd decided to steal it. Alongside this, the Subway store hadn't even opened yet, but Kathleen and Robert had run into a number of problems. The plumbing in the building they were doing up was a big problem and needed quite a lot of work, and it cost a fair amount of money. Kathleen told her dad David about this, and he agreed to invest even more money so that they could get it all sorted, but only once he'd had a detailed look at the bank statements. Which, prosecutors said, would be devastating for Robert, who had stolen that $7,000 out of the business account. If Kathleen's dad David saw detailed bank statements, he'd know immediately that Robert was stealing from them. When officers questioned Robert, they immediately saw that he had scratch marks on his neck bruises on his chest and he'd broken one of his toes. They thought this might have been as a result of a fight that happened in Kathleen's apartment. Kathleen's good friend Donna said that not long before her death, Kathleen asked her for a loan of about $4,000. Donna didn't have that kind of money but she could see that her friend was feeling deflated and didn't know what to do. Kathleen also said that she'd somehow lost one of the business's checkbooks and on looking at the accounts, there was nearly $8,000 that had gone missing. At that point, Donna had asked Kathleen if she suspected Robert might have stolen that money, but Kathleen was sure he wouldn't do that. So Robert was the main suspect, but it wasn't as simple as that, it rarely is. The fire investigators said that due to the use of accelerant, the fire would have ignited pretty much immediately after it was started. 
This meant that it would have started around 10.42am when the first 911 call came in and eyewitnesses saw the smoke coming from Kathleen's apartment. Robert's then-girlfriend Jennifer told officers that Robert had been with her on the evening before the murder. She said everything had been normal, they'd watched TV at home and then gone out to dinner. On the morning of the murder, Jennifer and Robert woke up and headed to work at the flower shop. They worked together, but that morning had taken separate cars. A witness who knew Robert placed him at the flower shop at a little after 10.30am. His then-girlfriend Jennifer said that she hadn't seen any injuries until a lot later in the day. The prosecutor asked her if she would have noticed the injuries earlier in the day if he had them and she confirmed that she definitely would have. Another witness, a friend of Robert's, testified that he'd seen Robert at midday and hadn't seen any injuries. Robert swore that he'd only gotten his injuries later in the day after Kathleen had been murdered. He said that after hearing the news, he'd moved backwards in a bit of a daze, stepped up onto a ladder to get something, and then he'd slipped and grabbed a shelf for support as he fell. The shelf moved and fell off under his weight and that's what had cut his neck. As for his broken toe, he said that happened after he kicked the wall in frustration once he learned Kathleen had died. And with that, the case went cold for months. In May 1985, a little over six months since Kathleen's murder, detectives were still following Robert as their prime suspect. Around this time, he proposed to his then-girlfriend Jennifer. She said yes, and after that, they took out life insurance policies on each other. This raised alarm bells in detectives' minds. They managed to get Jennifer alone and told her that they thought she was in danger. They outlined how the life insurance policy Robert had just taken out on her was potentially a death trap. The detective went on to say that they could offer her immunity from prosecution in the case against Robert if she was 100% honest with them. That's when she admitted she'd initially lied about the morning of Kathleen's murder. Jennifer had only said that she and Robert had been together that morning because Robert's mum had turned up at the flower shop at 10am and found it to be closed. Robert's mum called Jennifer and asked where they were at. She didn't want Robert to get in trouble so she lied to her and, in turn, lied to the police. In reality, when she'd woken up that morning, Robert was already gone. She didn't know where he was or for how long he'd been gone. Robert's version of that morning was that he had woken up at 8.45 so that he could go and work on his car. He said he couldn't fix it on his own, so he'd headed to his brother's house to get some more specialised tools. He managed to get it fixed and then drove home. He said he then took a shower, got ready for the day, and made his way to the flower shop where he arrived at 10.20am. A number of witnesses, including some of Robert's friends, gave him an alibi. They'd seen him at around 10.30am at the flower shop his mother owned. He'd worked there as a manager and said he'd been there all morning. Jennifer also told officers that Robert had suggested they go to Las Vegas to get married quickly because he knew a wife doesn't have to testify against a husband. After this came to light, Jennifer and Robert broke up and Robert began dating a new employee at the flower shop called Anna Carpenter. Meanwhile, the suspects in Kathleen's murder were mounting up. New Times reported on a different potential suspect, a man called Rick Shibler. He worked as Subway's development agent for Arizona. Kathleen's mum testified that one day Kathleen had come up to her, unsure what to do. She was angry because she wanted a specific site for the Subway store, but Rick had ended up taking it and giving it to someone in his family. Kathleen told her mum she was going to call Subway's head office to complain to them about the breach of ethics. The alternative site she and Robert had been given for their Subway store wasn't as good a location and she knew, just as Rick did, that would affect their profits. 
The relationship between Rick and Kathleen remains a bit foggy, but it's suspected that they might have been romantically involved. Kathleen was alleged to be having an affair with Rick whilst she was dating Sam. The two had allegedly been seeing each other for several weeks before the murder. Officers questioned Rick, and he told them that around 10am on the morning of Kathleen's murder, he'd been working at his subway shop when he'd cut himself pretty badly on one of his fingers. The cut was so bad that he actually had to go to the hospital where they gave him 12 stitches. During that police questioning, Rick had a question for the detectives. He asked why someone would hit her on the head and then burn the apartment down. Detectives found the specificity of that question odd. How had Rick known that level of detail? Was it possible it could have been a guess or a conclusion from the townspeople talking? Or was he there? Rick said that it was just a general comment, quote, no, that was just, yeah, that, well, that, no. I don't know what that was. It was just more of a generalization, you know, okay? You know, knock her out. You know, get her and burn her place as opposed to a specific way that it happened, whatever it was. But I don't recall anybody ever saying to me that she was hit over the head. It was a general comment. But detectives didn't believe him. No one outside of the investigating team knew about the exact circumstances relating to Kathleen's death. Even her family didn't know. On top of that, the eyewitness account of a man fleeing the scene of the crime described someone with blonde hair. Rick had blonde hair at the time, in stark comparison to Robert, who had black hair. The friend of Kathleen's that had later told officers Rick had made a move on Kathleen added that when she met him and said she was a friend of Kathleen's, Rick had said, quote, Oh, you're a friend of that bitch. He went on to say he was only joking, but she found the whole interaction a bit odd. Rick told detectives that he'd arrived at the subway store next door to the flower shop Robert worked at sometime between 9.30 and 10am. He went on to say that after he arrived, he cut his finger and then went straight to the emergency room. An employee corroborated that Rick had come into the subway store at sometime between 10.15am with his hand wrapped in a towel and stated that he was going to go and drive himself to the emergency room. Records from the emergency room show that Rick got there at 11.15am and was out by 12.30. He's never been asked what he was doing between 10.15 and 11.15. There was one piece of evidence that had been taken from just outside of the initial crime scene. When that man who was running away from the scene had stumbled past Ina and her granddaughter Lisa, he'd left a shoe print in the flower bed. That shoe print was preserved and was found to be around a size 9.5, which was odd because Robert's shoe size was 13. The grandmother at the scene, Ina, told officers that she noticed the man's feet were huge, which would account for Robert potentially being the person running away from the scene of the crime. But it didn't tally with the shoe print that was taken from the flower bed. That size 9 shoe print was a match to Rick's shoe size. He was a 9.5. Despite this evidence against Rick, the police department wanted to charge Robert with murder, but they simply didn't have enough evidence. Lots of the evidence they did have was circumstantial and wouldn't hold up on its own in a court of law. A reward of $50,000 was offered to anyone who could give information that led to an arrest and conviction in the murder of Kathleen. And then, in January of 1985, Rick's subway store next door to Robert's mother's flower shop was the subject of a terrifying discovery. One of the Subway customers had been inside Rick's Subway store when they came across a homemade bomb. The FBI were called in to help investigate, but ultimately couldn't figure out who had placed it there. Rick stated that he suspected Robert. He said Robert had been causing issues for him. However, 
it came to light that Rick was losing money through his subway store and was struggling financially because of his recent divorce. Another theory was that he might have placed the bomb there himself so he could claim insurance money. And that was it for an entire year. Detectives were still working hard behind the scenes, but nothing came out publicly for the rest of 1985. And then, on the morning of Saturday the 11th of January 1986, a young soldier called Tad Galinsky was heading out of his barracks at Fort Hood in Texas to collect his mail. He found two packages waiting for him. One was from Anna Carpenter. Anna was the woman Robert Ortloff had been dating recently back in Tempe. The two were still working together at the flower shop, but Anna had met Tad whilst he'd returned home for a Christmas break and she took a fancy to him. Anna had told Robert she wanted to slow things down in their relationship. It was all moving too quickly for her. And alongside that, she also decided to send a gift package to Tad. She packed up a bottle of rum, a teddy bear, and also wrote three letters to him. The second package waiting for Tad was much simpler in how it looked. It was just a cardboard box that had his barracks address on it and the same barracks address as the return address. He carried both boxes back to his bed at Fort Worth and sat down to open them. He chose to open the seemingly less exciting cardboard box first. As he did so, it exploded. Two pipe bombs had been laced with hundreds of nails to explode as soon as it opened. Tad was extremely badly injured, with nails shooting everywhere into his legs and all around the room. By some way of a miracle though, he survived. The loud blast that came from the room Tad was in attracted a number of other soldiers and military police who rushed in to see what was going on. On seeing the horrific scene in front of them, they got to work on helping Tad as best they could. Emergency medics arrived quickly and helped Tad, whilst CID agents took the second unopened package and destroyed it. They obviously didn't know it only contained gifts from Anna and had suspected there may be another bomb waiting for Tad. This was a serious threat, especially for it to have happened on military soil, so the FBI took over the case and started their own investigation. They started by looking into where the bomb had been posted from and found out that it was mailed from a post office just six miles away from the flower shop Anna worked at. They went on to ask Tad who might have wanted to hurt him, but he didn't know. He didn't have any known enemies and he couldn't think of anyone who would have wanted to hurt him. But then a name came to him. Anna had pointed out a guy that she'd been seeing who wasn't too happy with the new romance blossoming between her and Tad. He gave the FBI the name Robert Ortloff, adding that he'd briefly met him when he'd been back home at Christmas, but only for about five minutes. It was, of course, Robert's mum's flower shop that Anna worked at the one that had been just a few miles away from the post office that the bomb had been posted from. The FBI continued their investigation and a fingerprint examiner found a clear palm print and fingerprints on debris left over that had been found in Tad's room. The fingerprints and palm print were a match to Robert Ortloff. As well as this, they found tool marks on the bomb wires that matched up with a tool they'd taken from Robert's apartment. That was all the FBI needed. They arrested Robert immediately and he was extradited to Texas. In the summer of 1986, Robert's trial for the mail bombing went ahead, but after the jury voted 10 to two to acquit Robert of all charges in the case, the judge ordered a mistrial and a new trial was set for three months later. In August of 1986, the second trial took place and the testimony of bomb expert Tom Thurman was key in the result. The prosecution also called Michael Parker to testify. 
He was an ex-prisoner who had offered to testify against Robert for leniency in his prison sentence. He said that Robert had attempted to hire him to kill Anna and her brother. Michael wasn't used in the first trial, but in the second one, he was called to testify. By that time, Michael had been released from prison, so didn't have any personal reason to testify, but he still did. And Michael said he had proof. He gave them a map that he swore Robert had drawn for him. The map showed clear directions leading to Anna's house. Michael went on to say that Robert had given him two options. Firstly, he instructed Michael to put a bomb inside Anna's house and then tip off police to make it seem like she could have made it herself. The second plan was for Michael to kill Anna and then abduct her brother and force him into writing a note admitting to the bombing at Fort Hood before killing him too. Robert admitted that he had drawn that map, but he said he never gave it to Michael and that he'd only ever drawn it in the hope that someone could find out something about Anna or her brother that would help his case. He said it was never drawn with murderous intent. Alongside this, four witnesses were called to testify that Robert had told them all separately that he did know how to make a pipe bomb. The first witness was his ex, Jennifer, and the next was Anna. Anna also testified that she recognised the writing on the outside of the cardboard package that housed the bomb, and it was Robert's. At trial, Robert did take the stand in his defence and told the court that he wasn't even in love with Anna and that it was never really that serious. The FBI had also spoken to the postal worker who had dealt with the posting of the bomb and she was asked to identify the poster from a photo lineup. Robert was in the lineup, but she said the person who posted the bomb wasn't on that photo sheet. Despite this, Robert was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to 50 years in prison. Seven years later, however, a huge scandal that took place inside the FBI crime lab was exposed. An ex-employee who worked there for many years claimed that lab experts had doctored reports, falsified findings and not practiced safe handling of evidence. The ex-employee named various experts in this report, including Tom Thurman, the key witness in Robert's trial back in 1986. Because of this, there were understandably some questions raised over the legitimacy of the FBI's findings. Tom Thurman had testified that the fingerprints they found on debris that matched Robert must definitely have come from the bomb and not from the package that Anna had sent. Obviously, it would have been within reason for Robert's fingerprints to be found in Anna's package as they worked at the same flower shop, so that bit of testimony was very important to the trial. The tricky thing about this was that there really wasn't any way to tell that the fingerprints were definitely from the bomb box. The original understanding was that the bomb box exploded and then the gift package was taken away and destroyed elsewhere by the CID. But it was later discovered that the insides of the gift package had been found all over Tad's room after the initial explosion. But they couldn't retest any of the evidence because since the trial, it had been destroyed. Whilst Robert was in prison, he got to know the ex-lawyer Frederick Tokars, who I wrote about in the last episode of Red Rum. I'll leave a link to the case in the description box, but in basic terms, he was found guilty of hiring a hit on his wife so that she wouldn't expose his dealings with the criminal underworld of drug trafficking and money laundering. The hit took place in front of their two young sons and Fred was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to life. Fred would go on to say that Robert admitted to the murder of Kathleen Smith, 
Remember that Robert is in prison on the bombing charge, but he wasn't actually ever convicted in Kathleen's murder because of a lack of evidence. But with this alleged confession to Fred, it was decided that there was now enough evidence to proceed with the murder charge. Fred said that over a few months, Robert had admitted to him that he'd murdered Kathleen, but it was an accident. According to Fred, Robert went on to say that once Kathleen found out that he'd stolen the money from their Subway business account, he knew she was going to turn him into her dad and the police, and he would go to prison. Fred went on, saying that Robert had described how he and Kathleen had been in an argument on that October morning, and he'd ended up hitting her over the head. He then said he'd left the apartment to get gasoline, and when he came back, he set her body and the apartment on fire. Although Fred said Robert's story changed and he said he had actually planned on killing Kathleen. He'd taken gloves and a rope with him so he could strangle her, but the argument got heated and he'd ended up hitting her over the head instead. Robert allegedly told him he used gasoline to start the fire and had made a wick out of toilet paper so that he'd be able to escape over the course of 5 to 20 minutes it took for the wick to burn. That was how he was able to get back to the flower shop by 10.40, when the witnesses had seen the smoke coming out of Kathleen's apartment. This contradicted what the fire investigators had found at the crime scene, saying that the gasoline element meant the fire would have started pretty much immediately. On top of this, he said Robert had admitted to placing that bomb in Rick's subway shop next door to the flower shop he worked in. Fred said that in exchange for his testimony against Robert, he wanted to be given witness protection and transferred to a specific prison. Of course, how much weight you can put on Fred's testimony is questionable, given his background and murder conviction. Even so, in 2003, Robert was charged with burglary, arson, and first-degree murder for the murder of Kathleen, and in 2008, the case went to trial. The main piece of evidence was Fred's testimony. At first, the state said that they would be seeking the death penalty, but then they got the second medical examiner's report in that said Kathleen had been dead before her body was set on fire, and so they decided instead to seek for life imprisonment. Robert's defence argued that the evidence was circumstantial, hearsay, or by way of criminal testimony. One piece of evidence was based around Robert supposedly running from the scene and the grandmother Ina and granddaughter Lisa seeing him. Ina couldn't identify Robert, and Lisa said she thought he was blonde. They had also shown police that clear footprint made in the flower bed outside the apartments, and that wasn't Robert's. They even got a podiatrist to testify that there was no way the shoe print could be Robert's. This moment in court was compared to OJ Simpson's trial, when he was asked to try on the glove found at the crime scene with an assumption that it would fit and add to his guilt. The opposite happened, and it's given as one of the reasons as to why he was found not guilty at that trial. In Robert's case, a huge piece of evidence, a footprint made by the murderer fleeing the scene, was three sizes too small for him. With all of the evidence considered, and the closing arguments from both the defence and the prosecution given, and after just five hours of deliberation, the jury announced the verdict. Robert was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. To this day, Robert maintains his innocence, but he's not been granted a new trial on appeal, and it looks as though he'll be staying behind bars for the foreseeable future. There are a lot of questions that came up from this case, and most of them haven't been answered. Kathleen's family are generally satisfied that the right person is in prison. As for Robert's trial, and whether he is guilty of murder and the bombing, I'm just not sure. 
He could be, there's a lot of evidence against him, but as to whether his guilt is proven beyond reasonable doubt, I don't know. I tend to do open and shut, solved cases, but this one's a bit different and I would be really interested to hear what you think. And I'll see you next week for another episode of Red Rump.